realize that as children of yours, this place we are in now is not our home, that we are sojourners in a land, but Lord, our home is in heaven with you. And Lord, we so look forward to that, that day when we stand in your presence, forever in your presence. Lord, we thank you as we recognize, we understand that that, that is a gift, something we do not deserve. Lord, again, we stand in awe as we've sung tonight at all that it took for death to be defeated, for, for the grave to be overcome on our behalf. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you in this season as we celebrate your incarnation, your becoming one of us. Lord, ultimately, that you would take your perfect, sinless life to the cross and die on our behalf. So, Lord, one day we can finally come home. Lord, we ask that you would bless our time here together tonight as we open your word and that you would just speak to us. Lord, we're amazed every time how personal and intimate your heart is towards us and your word is towards us. So Lord, we just we give you this time. We ask that you have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good evening. Take out your Bibles, please, if you would. 2 Samuel chapter 8 little sticky note is to remind me to tell you that there is no Wednesday service next week. So we'll have our Christmas Eve service on Thursday night, four and six o'clock we have our candlelight services, but there will not be a Wednesday night service next week. Second Samuel chapter eight, continue looking at the life of David, the life now of King David. As we've note, noted the last few weeks, they, the, the, all of Israel now recognizes David as their king. We looked at last time how David, in one of the first things that he did was go and to get the ark and to bring it into Jerusalem, not only now the, the, the governmental capital of Israel in Jerusalem, but now also the spiritual capital, the, the center of worship is now in Jerusalem. We noted last time also that David's heart was to build a temple for the Lord in Jerusalem, but the Lord told David that it was not for him to build, that his son would build the temple. We spoke of David's heart and his prayer in that in chapter 7. And in chapter 8, it says, verse 1, Now after this, it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took control of the chief city, that being Gath, from the hand of the Philistines. The Philistines, the the nemesis, if you would, of Israel, they occupied a large portion of, of country along the Mediterranean Sea and continually a problem for the, the Israelites throughout their history in Israel to this point. But we see here in verse 1 that David defeated the Philistines, subdued them, took control of their main city, that being Gath. Verse 2, he defeated Moab and measured them with the line, making them lie down on the ground. And he measured two lines and put to death one full line, put to, to death two lines of them to death, and one line he kept alive. 
And the Moabites became servants of David, bringing tribute. So David defeats the Moabites. Again, a, a, a long history of problems with the, with the Israelites, defeat, killing, putting two-thirds of them to death. One-third of them would serve them, be servants to them. And looking at this, we don't know what happened between David and the Moabites. We know that his great-grandmother was a Moabitess, and we even know, looking back in 1 Samuel, that, that David took his mother and his father to the king of Moab to watch over them. And some commentators believe that it was because his parents were mistreated or perhaps even killed by the Moabites when everything went down with Saul that this is perhaps there. We don't know that for certain, but what we do know is that David defeated them. Verse 3, then David defeated Hadadzer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah, as he went to restore his rule at the river, and that the river is the river Euphrates. David captured from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung the chariot horses, but reserved enough of them for 100 chariots. Now, David didn't kill the horses. What he did was make them so that they could no longer pull chariots, and that was a smart thing to do in the battle. They could no longer, his enemies could no longer use them as chariot horses. Verse 5, when the Arameans, that's those, the Syrians of Damascus, came to help Hadadzer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 Arameans. Then David put a garrison among the Arameans of Damascus, and the Arameans became servants to David, bringing tribute. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. David took the shields of gold, which were carried by the servants of Hadadzer, and brought them to Jerusalem. From Betah, and from Bethorai, cities of Hadadzer, the King David took a very large amount of bronze. So taking the spoils, uh, the valuable metals that the shields and, and other things were made of, and he brings them back to Jerusalem. Verse 9, now when Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the armies of Hadadzer, Toy sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadzer and, beat and defeated him. For Hadadzer had been at war with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver and gold and bronze. So another king that had been fighting against the enemies of David as well, now sees, you know, sees that David has now finally defeated them, pushed them back. He sends gifts along with his, his son, peace offering to David. Verse 11, King David also dedicated these to the Lord with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Arab and Moab, the sons of Ammon and the Philistines and Amalek, and from the spoils of Hadadzer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. So David made a name for himself when he returned from killing 18,000 Arameans in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons in Edom. In all Edom, he put garrisons, and the Edomites became servants to David, and the Lord helped David wherever he went. I wanted to read through this and kind of go back now through it and look at a couple of things, because we see here David, now that he is, he's king, he is in control now, he's got the armies that are going, and we notice as we look through this, there's a quite a list in just these first few verses here of nations of people groups that David went out and conquered. Notice first we mentioned the Philistines. 
they occupied a large portion of the western part and along the Mediterranean Sea. We see the Moabites. They occupied a territory that was east of the Dead Sea, a very large amount of territory over there. The Syrians, today Syria, north and northeast of Israel. And then Edom, which was south of the Dead Sea and southeast of the Dead Sea. Now, why is that important and why am I pointing all of this out to you? Well, this now, King David, at this point, when we reach verse 14 of chapter 8, all of the years later, finally fulfills for, for a very short time, but the promise that God gave to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 18 where he said that I will give all of this land to you from the, from the river in Egypt all the way to the river Euphrates. And we see here on, and I have a map that I, that I found that kind of describes, I don't know if we can, if you, how well you can see this here. I got a little laser pointer here. But down here is the river Egypt, and you can see down here the Edomites in this area here. So after conquering them, and the river Euphrates up here, all of the Syrian territory that David conquered, finally... All of this is now under Israelite control, under King David. And we see here that, he, that as we look through this, that there is total victory in all areas. This is the first time now where there is not area within the promised land that is not occupied by enemies of Israel. Now, when we look at this, and we want to maybe make this a little personal, personal application that we can pull out of this. As Christians, we are promised great and many things. The Bible tells us, Peter tells us, that it has been granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We don't grow into that. It's not something that we earn over time. It's not like we get raises as Christians, you know, and, and you know, cost of living increases as we move along. Has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Bottom line is, it's up to us to seize control of what has been given to us, to possess our possessions. And we see here, David, that he, he went out and he didn't settle for anything less than all God had promised them. And we should never settle for anything less either. Just like with David, though, there's no victory without a fight. But we need to understand, yes, these were physical battles fought with physical instruments. When we look at the numbers of the people that he defeated, he wasn't shooting missiles from airplanes at them. This was hand-to-hand combat. This was, this was hard, laborious fighting that is going on. But victory, and it, I, I love this. I have this underlined in both, in verse 6 and in verse 14. The Lord helped David wherever he went. He went out in faith. He went out in, to take control and take, take hold of all that God had promised the people. And God went with him everywhere he went. The same promise is with us. The Lord says, I will never leave you and never forsake you. When we step out in faith and grab a hold of all that God has for us, we, the, the, again, physical battles here. We know that our enemy, the things that we fight are not physical. We know that as Christians, as, as humans, we fight the, the enemy, we fight the devil, we fight our flesh, we fight the world. But we don't fight with physical weapons. Our weapons aren't carnal, they're spiritual. 
for tearing down of strongholds, those things in our lives that are keeping us from being all that we can be, for, from possessing all that we can possess. I look at, I look at this and I, I, I love the words that are used here. And again, drawing that to us, he defeated the Philistines. It wasn't enough to just battle them. It wasn't just enough to win a battle here and there. He absolutely defeated the Philistines. He took control of their chief city. He took control. Defeated Moab, defeated Hadezer, captured in verse four. Verse six is important to me as I'm looking through this again. Then he put a garrison around the Arameans of Damascus and they became his servants. He put a garrison around. He put a guard around Damascus. We need to put a guard around our lives. We need to put a guard around us continually. We can't take it, we can't just say, okay, I have that area covered, I have, a, I have victory over here, and then leave that area unguarded going forward. We are in our flesh weak. <laughs> The world is full of temptation all around us. We need to have those guards put in place. Be- became servants. I'm drawn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul writes, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I will not be disqualified." putting a garrison around. I see that in, in, what, in what Paul is saying, not to be disqualified. I have to, put, I have to put boundaries up. I have to put a guard up. I have to have, we have to have accountability with one another. That's one of the greatest guards to have up in our lives is to have someone that holds you accountable or several people that hold you accountable. We hold one another accountable. You put blocks and screens on things that, are, that might be a continual temptation. Not again, that we just have victory here and I can move on, but always the enemy, the enemy loves that, loves that. Yeah, you just go on and think you have victory here and then sneak up when you're not looking. Placing a guard, make it, make it our servants. Notice also that after it was defeated, captured, putting a garrison around, destroying the strongholds, he dedicated all that he got to the Lord. Everything dedicated to him. All that is brought in, all of this silver, all of this gold. And we spoke of this last time, remember, and I want to kind of circle back around if you weren't here last week and if you were just as a reminder. David wanted more than I think anything else if, if I, I see David's heart in chapter seven. He wanted more than anything else to build a temple for God, a house for God, a place for worship for, for Almighty God. That, with all of his heart, that was his desire. But God said, no, your son is going to do it. And he did not say, well, so much for that. He didn't get upset. He, didn't, he, he said, thank you for 
what you have given me. Thank you for allowing me to be who I am. Thank you for the promise you've given me. And then he went out and made sure that when it came time for Solomon to build the temple, he had everything that he needed to build it. And you know what it was called? Solomon's temple. David didn't even, his name's not even on it. (laughs) And that was okay with him. Whatever you let me do, Lord, whatever part, whatever you allow me to participate in. And all of this stuff he brings back, all of the silver, all of the gold. When Solomon needed all of the silver and gold to plate everything and to make everything, it was sitting there in the treasury for him because his dad went out and got it all and took it all taken care of. It tells us that there was so much silver by the time Solomon became king. In 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 27, it says it became, silver became so common it was like stones. <laughs> so much silver destroying the strongholds, dedicating everything to the Lord. But notice, and this is one of those, I skip over it kind of quickly, but go back to it. Verse 13, so David made a name for himself. That's one of those things that we always have to be so careful of. Just in a quick glance of that, it almost sounds like there might be some pride in that. And that's easy to do. Especially after victory, after victory, after victory, all of a sudden say, hey, look at me. David made a name for itself, it says, but David never took the credit himself. He always deflected the glory. So we are to defeat, destroy, to dedicate, and to deflect. Psalm 60 was written by David in this time, and we see in there his, again, giving all the glory to God. Verse 12 of Psalm 60 says, Through God we shall do valiantly, and it is he who will tread down our adversaries. Never taking the glory to himself, always giving all of the glory to God. We see the total, total, again, victory in all of it. Another another psalm David wrote in that time, speaking of the, the horses that we had talked about just a moment ago, that he had said, he says, the the Lord said. Remember, they weren't supposed to multiply their wives, and we saw that David didn't pay much attention to that command, but the command that he did pay attention to comes right before that in Deuteronomy, that they're not to multiply horses. Not to, and you wonder, what, what is, why, why is that? Well, in Psalm 20, David writes, some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. He's, again, all glory goes to God. He understands that everything that he has has come from the Lord. Every blessing that he has, every victory that he has comes from the Lord. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. The Lord, again, just to underscore that again, will be with us, will help us. Every step that we take in obedience as David did. Verse 15, so David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and righteousness for all of his people. Verse 16, Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Sariah was secretary. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and the Pelethites and David's sons were chief ministers. Here we see kind of his cabinet members, if you would, those that were over the military and over the governmental things with him. 
chapter 9. Chapter 9 is a beautiful story, a beautiful picture of the grace of God. And it is played out for us in David, somebody who understood the grace of God. As we've studied the life of David, we see that over and over, how he understands, and again, giving credit, all credit to the Lord, all praise to God, understanding the grace of God. As we come to chapter 9, we're about 15 years into David's reign as king. Verse 1, then David said, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Jonathan, David's friend, wonder if, again, now that he's had all of these battle successes and things are going well, he has his palace and he's maybe just sitting there reflecting on all that has taken place and all that God has done and how wonderful everything is right now and probably wondering, you know, remembering back to when he and Jonathan would would talk about these times. Remember the discussions that Jonathan and David had Jonathan knew that David was going to be king, even though, from an earthly standpoint, Jonathan should be the king. He's the eldest son of Saul, but he knew that David was going to be the king. And they talked about, when you are king, Jonathan would say, when you are king, David, and I am serving you. wonder how, just again, David maybe just sitting there and thinking through that and remembering his friend, saying, I wonder if there's anyone left of the house of Saul so that I may show them kindness for Jonathan's sake, not for Saul's sake, for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. Now we were introduced to this young man back in chapter 4. And the story is told, there his name is Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan. And when news came that Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle and that the, 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 this massacre took place and they were both killed in battle, and now the news came that now David would be, become king. Mephibosheth's maid, the, her, the one who was in charge of him, panicked. And rightfully so. I mean, in that time, that it, was, it was custom. If a new king was coming to power, that king would kill any of the offspring of the previous king to avoid any conflict. I mean, that was just part of the culture then misunderstanding completely, certainly, the heart of David. No doubt she probably even thinking, no matter, especially how Saul treated David, it's going to be equally so or more so when David becomes king. So I have to get Mephibosheth out of here. So she panics. She's running out of the house. She trips. She drops him. He was five years old at the time. And it tells us that he became lame or crippled in both of his feet at that point. Now, this is, as I mentioned, about 15 years later. So he's 19, 20 years old now. Verse 4, so the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, behold, he is in the house of Makir, the son of Amiliel, in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Makir, the son of Amiliel, from Lodabar. Mephibosheth, 
the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, here is your servant. David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again, we're put, putting ourselves into the story, even in trying to understand what it must have been going through Mephibosheth's mind. Understanding again, too, that he has been in this place running from David, hiding from David, maybe even again thinking, as would have been correct, that he doesn't even know I'm alive. And then to hear all of a sudden some soldiers of David come into your house and saying, the king wants to see you. Imagine what must have been going through Mephibosheth's mind. His probably total panic heart pounding out of his chest. It tells us that when he does come into the presence of the king, he falls down, probably in a, totally begging for mercy. And I love David, do not fear. What a glorious picture of our king. All of us. Lame brains. All of us completely broken on our own. No doubt, if, if, you, if you came to the Lord later in life, or like myself, ran from the Lord for a long time, you can understand maybe even that feeling, running from God, hiding from God, thinking at times that you're even getting away with it. I did for a long time. I, think, I was thinking for quite a while, man, he has no idea where I am. He maybe even forgot that I exist. And then to hear that summons, (laughs) that call, the Holy Spirit drawing. And this, again, this nursemaid who raised him, and we don't know any more about her, but probably to a certain age, no doubt now Mephibosheth, we're going to find out he even has a son now. So, but from, from his childhood growing up, probably been told, you need to hide from David. You need to be scared to death of David. If he ever finds you and, you know, you just beg for mercy. And totally being, David, totally being misrepresented. Maybe you grew up in a church environment that said that that's how God is. That he's just angry. That he's just waiting to come down on you. If he ever does find you, you better watch out. And then to hear. And Mephibosheth. It doesn't tell us the tone of his voice, but you can almost tell, can't you? It wasn't Mephibosheth. But that's how often we think God would deal with us. I think it's awesome that he calls him by his name. Probably had to practice it a few times. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. But said it so tenderly, I believe. 
Bible tells us in John chapter 10, I believe, that our king knows every one of our names, knows all of his sheep by name. And when he calls us, he calls us so tenderly, even if we've been bad little sheep. And David says, as we've studied through Matthew, one of the, one of the favorite lines of the Lord, do not fear. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. For I will surely, surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. None of that, that, could, that had to be the furthest thing from Mephibosheth's mind. He's just hoping to get out of there alive. And David says, I know the plans I have for you. They're not to punish you. They're not to crush you. The plans I have are to bless you. Jeremiah tells us that's what the Lord says to us. Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. That's the God that we serve. That's the God of the word. That is the true and living God. So if you have a different God in your mind that you've maybe had growing up in, in a church or somebody has said, that's not the heart of the Father. That's not the heart of Jesus. His is to bless you. And I, especially, again, even after what we talked about this past weekend, you shall eat at my table regularly. That meant from now on, you will eat at my table. Eat at the king's table. I'm going to restore all of that that's out there, all that, that, that belonged to your father, all of that land. I'm going to restore that to you. But you know what? You're going to eat at my table from now on. You're going to eat at the king's table from now on. Verse 8, again, he prostrated himself and said, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Again, I'm drawn back to, we look at ourselves this way. And again, no doubt, we can place ourselves in this situation. Lame, the lame life we've lived, the brokenness that we have, running from God, hiding from God, and we come to him, and what would you ever do with a miserable wretch like me? But that's not how he sees us. He sees us clothed in his righteousness. He sees us blameless. He sees us as a spotless bride. That's how he sees us. Then the king, verse 9, called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him. So not, even, not only does he give it to him, he now commands a whole bunch of people to take care of it for him. 
And you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. There it is again. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, in case you were wondering. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands, his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at, the, at David's table as one of the king's sons. So he's not given the far end down at the end of the table and you get the scraps when we're all done. He's not even saying, all right, you sit down there with the other generals in the army and the, my other cabinet members. No, you sit up here with me and my sons. Again, I'm, I'm guessing not at all what Mephibosheth was thinking. Again, drawing the application to us and just looking, almost see the, just the parallels in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with, the heavenly, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. All the riches that are ours, because we've done such a great job and earned them all, <laughs> No, by grace, all by grace, the amazing riches that are ours. I don't know about you, but I don't spend enough time reflecting on that, understanding all that is mine in Christ Jesus, all that is promised of me in Christ Jesus. The fact that we are invited to sit at the table with the king forever. Amazing. Verse 12, Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants, servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. <laughs> now He was lame in both feet. Chapter 10, now it happened afterwards that the king of the Ammonites, and that's in now modern-day Jordan, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hennam, his son, became king in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hennam, the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. Now this phrase, I will show kindness, is the same as in verse in chapter 9, show kindness. Here to Mephibosheth, the son, of, the son of Jonathan, now he's talking about to the son of a king, and it says because he showed kindness to me, we don't, we don't have any record of what that kindness was, 
could have been perhaps when David was running from Saul at one point or somewhere along the line that he allowed him to stay there or we don't, we don't know, but somewhere along the line he did. David hears that he dies and he says, I'm going to show kindness to his son because the king showed kindness to me. So David sent some of his servants to console him concerning his father. But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanum their lord, do you think that David is honoring your father because he sent counselors to you or consolers to you? Has David not sent his servants to you in order to search the city, to spy it out and to overthrow it? The counselors, his advisors said to him, you really buy in David's story? That he really cares about your dad's passing and he's sending condolences to you? Wake up. He's sending them here to spy out the land so that they can come in and they can conquer us. It's important that when we seek counsel from people, that we seek counsel from godly people, gracious people, people of prayer, Far too often, in our, and it, I, sh- I should say that because we all have a tendency to be this way, all of us, especially in the world that we live in, but here we see the critical, suspicious spirit, and that should not be in us as Christians. That. The Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, you know, Jesus told us we're to love one another. One of the things that it tells us about love as it's defined for us in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians is love believes all things. Now that does not mean foolishly, ignorantly, but we should always, as Christians, assume the best about one another. That should be our default mechanism towards one another as Christians. Not, not, what are you trying? What are you, what are you getting at? You know, what, what's, what's, what's the motive behind that question? What is it, you know, <laughs> you say you want to bless me. What do you want? So, Hanum, the king, foolishly listens to these counselors, these critical, suspicious counselors. So, Hanum took David's servants and shaved off half their beards and cut off their garments in the middle as far as their hips and sent them away. Shaving off half their beards, that was in that time to a Jewish person about as insulting um, an act of absolute shame. They... They, I mean, it was like Duck Dynasty back then. I mean, it was, they took pride in their beards, you know? It was like, you know, it's this sign of masculinity for the man to have his beard full. So they shaved off half, half their beards. And then, and again, no doubt again, a contingent that's coming from David. So probably wearing kingly type garments and, you know, dressed nicely as they're going. They took their clothes and they cut them off at the hip, sending them back naked from the waist down. Again, totally trying to absolutely shame them and embarrass them and sending them back to David that way, saying, here's what we think about your 
condolences. And application for us in this, we've been sent out by our king into a world that is hostile with a message, just as, as their message, is a message of blessing. But it's not going to always be received that way, right? The Bible tells us that all who desire to live godly will face persecution. It's going to come. We're going to face hostility. We're going to face opposition. And in this, we see, again, it, it, it can be humiliating. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced that where maybe you're you're, you're praying in the lunchroom at work and a couple of people come in and, oh, there's the you know, Jesus freak or whatever, or people talking about you behind your back or in, in a golf, you know, golfing group or, or whatever that might be. You know, it, it, it try, almost purposely trying to embarrass or humiliate. And the, and the world is jumping on that bandwagon all over the place. We see in verse 5 how David handles this. It says, when it was told David, he sent to meet for them, for the men were greatly humiliated. And the king said, stay at Jericho until your beards grow and then return. Don't, it's not, I don't want you to be embarrassed. No doubt sent clothing to them too. But he said, hang out in Jericho till your beards grow back. Then come home. Don't, you don't, comfort. But that's, he also will take care of the, the, the troublemakers. And that, again, is a, a reminder for us. It's not up to us to, to fight back. It's not up to us to get back, to get even. The Bible says, the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. We do our part. That's to love. God's job is to take care of the judgment end of it. So often we get that flipped around, right? God, I'll judge him. You love him, I'll judge him. No, other way around. Verse 6, now when the sons of Ammon saw that they had become odious to David, the sons of Ammon sent and hired the Arameans from Beth Rehob and the Arameans of Zobah. So these ones that David had already conquered up in Syria left a lot of them alive. They're, they're servants now, but now the Arameans say, they're going to him and say, yeah, remember what David did to you? Come on down. We'll hire you. You come down and we're going to fight against David. So he brings them down, 20,000 foot soldiers, the, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob with 12,000 men. So he hires, excuse me, 30, 33,000 men to come and fight. When David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army, the mighty men, the sons of Ammon came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city, while the Arameans of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the field. So as they're approaching now the city, the hired soldiers, all of a sudden, they kind of pop up here on the side. So now David, his, David is not with them at this time, but they're, they're surrounded. Joab and the men, they're kind of flanked on, on all sides. Now, when Joab saw that the battle was set against him in front and in the rear, he selected from all the choice men of Israel and arrayed them against the Arameans. So he sees this. 
and I, I, th I think of the line that Chesty Puller is, is credited with saying, you know, we've got the enemy in front of us, the enemy behind us, the enemy on both sides. We're surrounded by them. They can't get away from us now. <laughs> kind of what I'm thinking Joab's thinking. All right, great. We can fight in every direction and we got them. So he's going to take on, he's taking the, the choice warriors and he's going to fight against the hired ones. These, these are, the, these are the, 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 the most skilled of the warriors. We're going to take these on. But the remainder of the people he placed in the head of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the sons of Ammon. So you go fight them. We're going to go fight these guys. And he says this, verse 11, he says, If the Arameans are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come to help you. I love that. That's how we're supposed to do this thing, guys. <laughs> we're not supposed to fight this battle alone. There's going to be days that I need you. And there's going to be days that you need me. And we need to communicate that with one another. We fight this battle together. I think that's just, that's just great, verse 11. He's, if they're too strong for me, I'll call for you, and you come alongside and help me. If they're too strong for you, you call for me, and I'll come alongside you. See the picture again at Nehemiah building the wall. You build over there, you build over there, you build over there. If one of us gets into trouble, we'll blow the trumpet, and all the rest of us will come, and we'll fight over there together. Great picture of how we, we do this. Again, obviously in the Lord's strength, but he's brought us together as a body for a reason. Verse 12, again, what a great encouragement that Joab gives as they get ready. Be strong and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. We're stepping forward in faith we're going to fight this battle in his strength. You need help, I'll come to you. I need help, you come to me. We're not going to sit back and fight this defensively. I think that's also kind of cool. They're surrounded. They could have just gotten in a circle and tried to fight it off defensively. They said, nope, you go that way. We'll go, and we're, we're, going, we're on offense, attack mode. May, God, may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Arameans, and they fled from before him. I love that. <laughs> These hired guys that are coming in, they got their money. All of a sudden, David and Joab, they say, wait a second. We're getting the varsity team coming after us. Wait a second. We're, we're the hired guys. So they just take off running. They got their money, and they go. And the sons of Ammon saw their money and the people running away. They saw the, the Arameans fled. They also fled from before Abishai and entered the city. So it's like, well, this thing, not a shot fired. The enemy just runs and retreats. Then Joab returned from fighting against the sons of Ammon, and he came to Jerusalem. When the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together, and Hedadzer sent and brought out the Arameans who were beyond the river, and they came to Helam and to Shobach, and the commander of the army of Hedadzer led them there. So they go back home for whatever reason, get all of their, their whole army together, and they're going to come back down and fight against David and his army. Now when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together, crossed the Jordan, and came to Halam. And the Arameans arrayed themselves to meet David and fought against him. 
But the Arameans fled from before Israel. David killed 700 charioteers of the Arameans, 40,000 horsemen, and struck down Shobach, the commander of the army, and he died there. When all the king's servants of Hadadzer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Arameans feared to help the sons of Ammon anymore. Victory, David amasses the Groot, and they go out and fight and victory again. As we see again, now David finally finishes in, again off as a rebellion stands up and finishes that. And chapter 11, we get into, after these great victories of David, David's great defeat, but we will get to that next time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, Ken, for your word and I'm amazed every, every time that we open it and that we come before you with, with open hearts, with open minds, wanting to hear from you and willing to be changed by you, that is exactly what happens. Lord, I, I pray that each of us would be challenged that if there's any area of our life that needs to be defeated, any stronghold, in our life that needs to be torn down. Any area that we have been promised victory from you, but we have yet to take, Lord, I pray that you would stir within us, that we would never settle for less than all you have promised for us. That we would fight in your strength. Where we have victory, Lord, that we would put up guards. That we would make those things that used to master us, that we would make it servants to us. Lord, we give you all the glory, for you alone are worthy. Lord, it's our desire to be as David was, a man who understands your grace and extends it. Lord, we desire to be gracious, loving, because, Lord, you have been so gracious to us. Lord, we, we do ask again now as we continue to prepare our hearts for this, this season, Lord, that you would use us in, in miraculous ways, Lord, supernatural ways, that we would shine your light in this dark world in this time. Lord, we pray for continued safety and protection for all of those volunteers and workers getting everything ready for this Friday night and Lord, we pray that this would just be a shining light in our city this week. Many would come, many that are wrapped up in their version of what Christmas should be and that they would just be brought to that amazing place at the, at the foot of your manger as we celebrate what Christmas truly is all about. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Uh, again, don't forget next Wednesday... If you come, you're going to be alone. So. <laughs>